Would you turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25 this morning? Leviticus chapter 25. Nearly everything in life that we pursue, we do so with the goal of enjoying lasting value. We want something that's going to be able to last beyond some momentary pleasure. So if we get a, a, a great dish at a restaurant, we make plans to go back and hope that they cook it the same way that they did the first time. If we experience a specific emotion because of a book or a movie that we watched, we try to find similar types of books or movies so that we can have that emotional feeling again. We want that feeling to last. If we taste a piece of chocolate that is just out of this world, we figure out how we can get some more of that chocolate. We want lasting value. If we go somewhere with our family and enjoy ourselves at a specific place, then we take pictures so we can enjoy the moment again. And even ordinary events of life are not so much experienced at the specific time that it goes on as much as they're experienced on video. We make sure that we capture every moment of action on video so that we can watch them over and over again. We want that experience to last. Even our money. We try to put our money in the best investment so that we can get the most lasting value out of what we have. Sadly, most of the things that we're pursuing, these things that I've been talking about, don't really have lasting value. Of all these things that I just mentioned, they're what the Bible calls fleeting and passing away. What we need to recognize is that we live in a world that is passing away and that our greatest pursuit in life should not be to get our emotions to last as long as possible or to get some object to recur so that we can enjoy it again. But it ought to be the pursuit of eternal things, things that have value beyond this life, that last beyond this lifetime. God often uses different circumstances in our lives, sometimes hard circumstances, to get us to remove the grip that we have on the things of this world, to help us to recognize that this life and many of the joys that we experience now are not all that there is to live for. We live for the next life and the joys that are to come. All that we have belongs to God. And because of that, we must rely on Him. For Israel, they had a responsibility to reflect on God and worship Him accordingly. And so God prescribed various uh, festivals that they were supposed to be a part of. We saw that last week. And they were supposed to observe these festivals so that they would be reminded of what God had done for them and what God was doing for them. That God was the provider. And now we we move into chapter 25 where we're going to see God provide another way for them to be reminded about their reliance upon Him, about their dependence upon Him. And it's through two specific times in their history. One was called the Sabbath year, and the second was the 
the, the seventh Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee. So the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. So let me just show you the two primary commands that we have in chapter 25. Again, this is to the, the people of Israel. This is not directed at the priests. This is directed at the people as a whole. Chapter 25, let me begin reading in verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Here's the first command. The land must have a Sabbath. It must take a year off. It must go fallow for a year. Verse 8, here's the second command. You also are to count off seven Sabbaths of years. Seven sevens. Seven times seven years so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of the year, namely 49 years. So, so every seven years, they're supposed to observe something. There's supposed to be something that happens during that year, not just for the land, but for the people as well. And then the second part is in verse 8 and following, and that's referring to the 49 years. After 49 years, they were supposed to do something as well. So those are the two main commands that we're going to look at this morning. And let me show you the purpose of God's having them set these days or years apart. Look at verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Here's the purpose for why they needed to have a, they needed to observe a Sabbath year and a Jubilee year. And it was because God owned it all. Everything that they had belonged to God. Everything that they had belonged to God, including their own bodies, including their land. And so God could cause them to use it or to, to uh, observe these years according to how He determined. And that's what He would do here in chapter 25. He's teaching Israel, when you come to the promised land, this is what you're going to do. So let's look at the first command that they were supposed to follow. That is, they were supposed to observe a Sabbath year. It's in verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read beginning in verse 3. Six years you shall, you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crops. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and your female slaves and your hired men and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you. So what was the Sabbath year? These verses help explain to us what the Sabbath year was. The Sabbath year was a period of time for the land and the animals and the people to rest. And as you can tell from the very uh, title of it, the Sabbath year, it's the seventh year. Every seventh year, they were supposed to rest. And this is in keeping with God's pattern that He set up from the very uh, beginning of creation. That after seven days, He would rest. And Israel was supposed to rest in every seventh day as well. And it should be a time of reflection and worship of God. And that's what they were supposed to be doing throughout their history. Every seventh day, the, the Sabbath day, Saturday for them. 
And now, God's saying, not only should you do it every seventh day, every week, but now you need to acknowledge me, rest, you need to reflect on me and worship me every seventh year. Now specifically, God talks about the nutrients or, or the land itself. And the land would, would lie fallow for one year, for this seventh year, the Sabbath year. And that would allow the land to have the nutrients of the soil restored because it was not, being, uh, it was not having to grow any, anything. It was not being plowed again and, and had to, uh, to bring about new life. The animals also, verse 7, would be free from the burden of the yoke. So it not only was a time of rest for the land, but also for the animals. They're not plowing like they normally do. And verse 6 tells us that the servants would also have rest. They would, they would normally be given to taking care of all of their master's needs, but here they're given rest. They're able to eat of the, the food of the previous uh, crop that came in, which was on the sixth year. And also the people of Israel would have rest themselves. What do you think the purpose of rest is for the people? Well, think about what rest is used for in the Bible. It wasn't a time for vegging out on, you know, just sitting around and watching TV or playing video games or something. It was a time to reflect on the mercies of God and on His ongoing provision. That in this day, when we're not working, God is still providing for us. It was a time when, remember, they would still have to eat during this year. And yet, how would they get their food in the other years? Well, they would, they, would, uh, they would work their field. They would hire servants to help bring in the crops. They would be very industrious during these first six years. But in the seventh year, they would still have to eat. But it wasn't them who was providing for them, for themselves. There was no sowing. There was no harvesting. There were no servants going in to gather crops. It was God who had provided for them. Do you know how He did that? He would give them a bumper crop in the sixth year. A double crop. So that it would be enough to provide for them both in the seventh year and until the time of harvest in the eighth year. It was God who would provide for them. Now, it's true that God all along was the, really the one who was providing for them, right? In the first six years, it was really God who provided for them. But they often don't reflect on that. And, and when you're sitting there in the seventh year where you're not doing all this work that you're accustomed to doing and you're still eating, you reflect on the fact that it's God who's the one who provides now think with me where Israel is right now and how they're surviving. Where is Israel right now in Leviticus 25? Geographically, where are they? They're in the wilderness. This is the very beginning of the wilderness journey. Forty years they're going to be here. But they've already started, we know from Exodus, they've already started receiving what kind of food? Manna, right? From heaven. And how often would the manna come? How many days per week? Six, right? Sunday through Friday, the manna would come. What would happen on Friday that was different from the other five days? 
there was a double portion of manna. And they were supposed to gather in a double portion. There may have been the same amount every day and just went unused. But, but the point was that they were supposed to gather enough on Friday so they would have enough for Saturday so they wouldn't have to go out and collect because actually God wasn't going to provide on Saturday. It was a day of rest. And they would experience this, they're going to experience this for 40 years in the wilderness. And what God is teaching them through this weekly rest that was required was that it was He that was providing for them. It was God who was providing for them. Sometimes in in the busyness of our work, we can forget that God is the one who provides, can't we? And it requires for us to take some time to just step back for a minute and think about where our provisions come from. Who actually is providing? See, in all the collecting of the manna in the first five days of the week, it might be tempting to think, this is all me. I'm doing the work. I'm the one who's putting this into some kind of uh, a bread or cake that I'm making it into. I'm coming up with some sort of new recipe to make my family happy because they're sick of eating the same things. And then it was on that seventh day, the Sabbath day, when they would be reminded, you know what, this is God. This is all God who's providing for us. God was teaching them to depend on Him. Do you think God ever tries to teach us the same sort of thing? Does God ever, at times, give us just enough to get by? Have you been in that situation where you just had enough to get by and it caused you to be reminded about His greatness and His provision for you. Now you might be thinking, well, I don't really see the connection between God's provision and what I have. Because all that I have, I've earned. I've earned with my money. I've earned from from my hard work. Maybe you came from uh, uh, humble means. Maybe your parents didn't provide you with a great inheritance and now you do have a good living. And so you're thinking it's it's because of me, because of my work. But don't you see that God's hand is ultimately the one who's providing for you, no matter what kind of means that you have. And if we don't see that connection, that God is the one who's providing for us, we haven't asked the right questions. We haven't gone far, gone far enough back with our questions. We could ask questions like this. Who grants me the power every day to be able to work? Who gives me the strength, the health that I need in order to go to my job and provide a living for my family? Or who allowed me to be born in a country where I could store my money in a secure place free from corruption for the most part and from burglary and actually able to earn a decent amount of interest? Who who allowed me to be born in that kind of a country? Who actually produces the food that I consume? How is it that there can be food that I can just go somewhere and get that food? Is that just because other people work or is that God actually providing for me? Who made my body so that it could take something that was dead, like an animal or plants, and somehow turn it into nutrients that would produce 
and enhance my life. Who did that? Who, who, gives, who, who transforms this food into life-giving molecules? Who gives me the health that I need to be able to put a spoon or a fork to my mouth? Who gives me the health to be able to drive to work or to walk to work or whatever? Who's responsible for my employer prospering financially so that he can give me a paycheck and the, the check won't bounce? Who's the one who does that? You see, if we take some time to reflect on the fact that everything belongs to God and that God is in control of all things and that we are simply recipients of His wonderful mercies and we are reminded about the God that we serve. And our eyes are less focused on our individual surroundings and the things that are going on around us and more on God and His provisions. So, what we have here is the Sabbath year, or as some people call it, the sabbatical year. And just by, uh, just as an aside, okay, there are pastors who use this passage and others in the Scripture to, to argue that they should be given a sabbatical year. Have you heard of this before? Where the pastor works six years, and in the seventh he's allowed to just take off and just have a year of rest. Of course, it's paid rest usually. But, but I hope you recognize that the command here is not for ministers to take off. What were the priests doing during this sabbatical year? Did they, were they able to take off and do nothing? Worship still went on. All the festivals that we talked about last week, they all went on throughout the year. Sacrifices, you think sacrifices stopped in the seventh year? Not at all. No, the sacrifices continued, and so the priests still had a responsibility day after day after day, including the Sabbath day, to be working. And so those pastors who use this as a means to get themselves a year off are using the Scriptures improperly. And I hope you, you recognize that. If anything, what they should be arguing for is for the people to get a year off of their work, not themselves, right? All right, that was free, and um, maybe a little, saw a little bit of a pet peeve that I have with some of the misinterpretations of Scripture that can go on, the sloppy interpretations that can go on. But that's why we have to be careful about what the Scriptures teach. And when we see them in their context, we start to see what God's purposes are for them. Not designed. This is not a, pas- a passage about pastors and their need to get time off. All right, let's move on before I start to get a little bit red and sweaty. All right. Uh, The year of Jubilee. So we have the Sabbath year, verses 1 through 7, and then the year of Jubilee. After seven Sabbaths, that is seven Sabbath years, seven times seven, we saw in verse 8, that's 49 years. So every 49 years, there was something special that happened for Israel. First, we see that there's a restoration of land, verses 8 through 12. Look at verse 8 you also are to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound a horn all through the land. So here, when you come to the seventh Sabbath year, so 49 years, when you come to year 49, then 
after that year has been observed, okay, remember that's already a Sabbath year, that's the seventh Sabbath year, after that year has been observed, then blow the trumpets. And this is going to commence the year of Jubilee, which, is actually, which actually takes place in year 50. And at this time, the land would be returned to its original owners. Look at verse 10. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property. And each of you shall return to his family. Just imagine what this must have been like for Israel. They have been allotted portions of the land throughout what is now known as Israel. They had been allotted portions of that land. And then throughout the course of five decades, the land starts to change hands, right? Just through the normal course of commerce, people buying and selling. Imagine how much this property here has changed, not this one here, but let's say Royal Oak as a whole. How, how different it is as far as the ownership of the land has changed over the last 50 years. Well, what happens on year 50 is that all the land goes back to its original owners. How would they know who owned what? Well, there's a great list in Joshua 13 through 21. We're not going to study that, but it just tell it breaks up all the land of Israel, tells exactly where it is, and shows how each of the 11 tribes of Israel are going to get those 12 tribes. And then, of course, uh, you have the Levites who would get a portion of each of the territories. So they would go back to this great record that they had in Joshua. And then they would be reminded about what kind of uh, where each each person was going to be. Obviously, they didn't have that record at this time, but they're not even in the land yet. But what God is saying is when you get into the land, on the 50th year, after the seventh Sabbath, you are to give all the land back to its original owners. Why would that be a year of jubilee? Well, think about it. For those who perhaps had difficult circumstances, you know, suppose I was in the tribe of Naphtali, and I was given a hundred acres of land near the Sea of Galilee. And I wanted to get out of farming and into glass making. And so I decided to make a, a career change. Well, I could sell my hundred acres to someone else. But when I did, I had to recognize that I was going to get that land back, wasn't I? Because the year of Jubilee was coming. Look at verse 16. This is how I was supposed to think about my sale. In proportion to the extent of the year's you shall increase its price. So if, if there's still a lot of years left until the years of Jubilee, then you can charge a large you can charge a high amount of money for the land. Then look at, at at the rest of the verse. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. So if it's only a few years before the year of Jubilee, it would be unfair for you to charge a high price because you're going to get it back in a few years. For it is the number of crops he is selling to you. So what you need to think about when you're selling your land on a non-jubilee year, you're basically leasing it, aren't you? You're leasing it to someone else because it actually belongs to you ultimately. It's going to come back to you. And this would be a cause for great joy. Now, there are three ways that the text tells us that a person could get the land back. Look at verse 23. The first way is through a kinsman redeemer. Verse 23, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. 
And if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So if you, for some reason, decided to make a career change, or if you got into a desperate situation where you had to give up your land, and here's the first way that you get your land back. One of your close relatives could buy it back for you. And we read about this when we get to the book of Ruth. Remember, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's not the first one. He's not the closest kin to Naomi. But he's the second. Remember, he has to go to the other man who's closer and says, you know, if you take this, you're also going to have to take Ruth. And you're going to need to carry on her her husband's um, uh, children, basically uh, his inheritance. And so he says, you know what? No, you can you can take it. And so... Boaz takes it. This is the kinsman redeemer idea. This is one way to get your land back. The second way is you can buy it back if you regain your means. Look at verse 26. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man, the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. So, First, you could have a kinsman, a close relative, buy it back. Second, you could regain your means and buy it back from the person you sold it to. And third, verse 28, but if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. So, someone who lost their land for one reason or another, could get it back. And this would be a great thing, a great time of joy for those who had just fallen to troubled circumstances, either because of their own fault or because of fault not their own. It would be a time of great rejoicing because they would recognize that even though they had perhaps humble means for 30 years, once in a lifetime, they would be able to get their land back. And this would provide for even the poorest of people in the land to not become abjectively poor, to the point of abject poverty. So there's a restoration of the land. And then in verses 35 through 55, there's a restoration of freedom. In the year of Jubilee, there's a restoration of land and a restoration of freedom. Not only was property returned to its original owner, but slaves were also freed. Look at verse 39. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and he shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. You shall not rule over him with severity, but you're to revere your God. So, if a person got in a situation where they just had such an insurmountable debt that they couldn't pay it, what they would do is that they would sell themselves to the person. They would basically hire up or offer up their services to that person to be able to pay off their debts. And what the Bible is telling us here is that during that time, Old Testament Israel was supposed to free these servants. Do not treat them as slaves. Treat them as servants, as hired servants. They're only going to be with you for a short period of time. After that, 
the year of Jubilee, they're going to be freed. And they're going to be able to go back to the land. Remember, they're going to regain land. Now they have produce. They can sell it. They can use it to eat and things. So God was showing them, and I think us, that no Jew could be a permanent slave. Jews were slaves in Egypt. And God wanted to show them that He had brought them out of that. And they were not going to be permanent slaves. They were instead hired servants. And God is very adamant about that. Now there is talk about Gentiles, that is, people from outside of the Jewish race. They could be slaves in verses 44 and following. And we might read this and say, well, maybe God here is condoning slavery. But listen to Gordon Wenham commentary uh, that I that came across this week as I was studying. He says, the word slavery brings up pictures of slave ships from Africa. But in Israel, it was much different. It was more like imprisonment. We say about a person who is in prison that they serve their what? They serve their time, right? It was for a person uh, so that they could pay off the debt that they owed. So they worked it off, essentially. They, they served their time. They served what they owed. It was less degrading than what we have in a modern penitentiary. The man was not cut off from society. He still had his family. Do you notice in those verses that he says, take your son with you, your whole family, go back to your land. So they still had family life and so on, but they just had to work in order to pay off what they owed. So when you think of God saying here, you know, uh, it's okay for you to have slaves of the Gentiles, it was not like the slavery that we think about today. Now, there are three ways to get your freedom back if you were a servant, a hired servant. One, a kinsman redeemer could buy you back. Verses 48 and 49. We won't read those again, but the, or we won't read these today. But, but a kinsman redeemer, just like with buying the land back, he could buy you back if you were a hired servant. Second way is found at the end of verse 49. It says, or one of, uh, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. So if he regains his means, just like with the land, he could buy himself back in a, uh, in essence. And then the the third way, and this is the one we want to focus on, is found in verse 54. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, the kinsman redeemer, or he regains his means, then he shall still go out in the year of jubilee he and his sons with him. This is great news for Israel. If a person got himself into some financial trouble and his family and had to sell himself and his family to be hired servants in order to pay back their debt, then he could look forward to once in a lifetime, every 50 years, once in a lifetime, a time where that debt was wiped away where he was restored to his original means. It was also good news because never again would they be in bondage like they were in Egypt. When they obeyed God's laws, they would be in God's land, the one that God owned. And they would have rest and freedom. The point of the, the, the celebration of this year was to show Israel their utter dependence on God. Remember verse 23? This land is mine. It belongs to me. It belonged to God. And it was effectively le- God was effective, effectively leasing it to them to possess. And if God wanted them to enjoy the fruit of the land, then they had to live by His laws. 
And when they did, He would provide for every single one of them in abundant ways. Every one of them. Look at verse 18. You shall thus observe My statutes and keep My judgments so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order My blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you're sowing the eighth year, you shall still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when it when its crop comes in. Here's the the potential problem that could come up. If they're going to take two years in a row off of sowing and reaping, not doing anything to the fields, not going in and gathering any of the food, uh, any of the harvest in, then how are they going to be provided for? And here God gives the answer. He says, I'm going to provide for you in the 48th year. He says the sixth year, which is the sixth of that cycle of years. But it's really the 48th year. I'm going to give you a triple bumper crop. So you have enough to take care of the 49th year, which is the Sabbath year, and then the next year, which is the year of Jubilee. So that throughout those three years, basically, while you're waiting for the next harvest to come in, I will give you enough. I will supply supply for your needs. And so we learned several things from this passage this morning. Number one, we must trust in God to provide. We must trust God to provide. The land was a great reminder to the people that it was ultimately God who provides. When the harvest comes in, it was God who was the cause. In the years where there was no harvest, it was God who provided. For us, it's a little bit harder to see Because when we want something, we take a few bucks out of our wallet, our purse, and we go down to the grocery store and and it's there. But for them, they had to wait for the harvest. They had to hope for and pray for rains to come on and, and, and pray that they would have enough. And there would be years of drought and famine. They had to trust in God to provide. The land pointed to the fact that God is the one who provides for them and for us. And the land also points forward to a time when God will abundantly provide for us during the Millennial Kingdom. Listen to Amos chapter 9. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Think about that for a second. They'll still be gathering in the harvest and the plowman's ready to start plowing the field for the next year. They'll they'll, They'll always be in each other's way. There's going to come a day when that's going to happen, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and on the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of My people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant on their land and they will not again be rooted up from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amos is writing during a time of captivity when Israel is not in the land. And he says there's coming a day when Israel will be restored to its land. When all of God's people will be able to enjoy the abundant harvest that He's going to provide for them for 1,000 years on this earth. Are you trusting in God to provide for you? 
Are you counting too much on your own resources, your own ability, your own health to provide for yourself? Number two, rest is coming. Do you know that God desires for you to have rest? He knows that you live and I live in a tribulation-filled world, in a world that is cursed, and He is working to bring you rest. And we've already gotten a taste of that rest when we gave ourselves to Christ. Jesus said, My yoke is easy and My burden is light. But we're going to get a full measure of that rest in the next life, in the life to come. Romans 8.22 says that all of creation now is groaning with the pains of childbirth. And the next verse says that we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Christian, eternal rest is coming. Eternal rest is coming. This is God's promise to you. Number three, justice is coming. The kingdom that God set up in the Old Testament was designed to be good for God's people. The main problem with it was that it was run by sinful people. See, God still has this plan to provide good for all of His people. God still promises to protect the poor and to protect private property and to be just and fair and equitable. Allow people to do the same. And and we can look forward to that kind of justice, can't we? Some of you perhaps have been the victim of injustice. And perhaps you're struggling physically or financially because of the result of the curse or because of the sin of someone else. Maybe someone has gotten off without paying restitution for the consequences that you experience every day. Well, you can be sure that in the coming kingdom, justice will be carried out. That God will make all things right. The things that seem all upside down right now, where the righteous seem to be suffering and the wicked seem to be prospering, that will be all reversed when Christ comes to reign. It will be very clear who the King is and who is on His side. There's coming a day when you will have a new glorified body, perfect health, and you will live under the rule of a righteous King, and it will be good for everyone. Number four, freedom is coming. We must trust God to provide for us. We need to recognize that rest is coming and justice is coming. And then, number four, freedom is coming. You may feel enslaved to the things of this world, maybe because of sin or the struggles that you face, but there is coming a time of joy when those who are are enslaved to the things of this world will be free. Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when He was teaching in the synagogue, He opened the Scriptures and read this passage from Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He anointed Me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then He closed the book and said, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ has fulfilled this Old Testament 
prophecy that the blind will have their sight restored. That's what happened when Jesus came. He, he did all these miracles. The, 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 uh, the captives will be freed and so on. And so we get a sense of what He did when He first came, but we're going to have a cl- very clear sense in the next life when He will do it fully and finally. No more to be cursed by those things. Number five, we ought to be good stewards of God's gifts. If everything is owned by God, then we must be good stewards of His gifts, of His resources. We can't just go about spending them or wasting them. Instead, we need to be considerate of of other people, just like Israel was supposed to be considerate of the poor. We need to be good stewards of of God's gifts and and use them for His purposes. And then finally, number six, loosen your grip on the things of this world. Loosen your grip on the things of this world. All that we have that is tangible in this life is fading away. It's passing away. It's temporary. And we are right to desire things that have lasting value. We are right to want things to last. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Aren't you tired of chasing after things that don't really matter? Aren't you tired of giving all of your time and resources towards things that will not matter in the next life? Pursue what has the most lasting value, and that is eternal things. It is a relationship with God. O Lord, sever any tie that binds us to the things that we have in this world. Save the tie that binds us to Your heart. Lord Jesus, my King, we consecrate our lives, Lord, to Thee. Let's pray. Father, it is very easy for us to hold tightly our grip to the things of this world, things that don't matter, things that won't have any impact on eternity. And so we pray that You'd help us to loosen our grip on those things and to strengthen our grip on You and the things that will last forever. A right relationship with You, a right relationship with Your people, giving of ourselves and our gifts for Your purposes. Lord, show us specific ways in which we can respond rightly to Your Word this morning. Thank You for the rest that You have promised and the freedom and the justice that is coming in the Millennial Kingdom when Jesus will reign. May You send Him quickly. In His name we pray. Amen.